Hey, good morning, Hillcrest family. Yeah. Um, my name's David. I love being one of the pastors around here. Privilege to, uh, to hang with you guys in this context consistently. You guys hear me say it. I can't believe you guys pay me to do this. This is an unreal privilege. And uh, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Uh, and, and it is for that hope. And that's why I do what I do, and, and I uh, got a glimpse of that this past Friday. Uh, Maxine Sebastian went to be with uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, met him face-to-face uh, on Friday. Uh, she met and stepped into eternity. And so uh, there's a celebration of life next Saturday if you'd want to participate in that for, uh, for Grandma Max. Uh, I was with their family on Thursday. And, uh, and they said, Maxine would always say three things, usually accompanied with a slap on the back of the head. She'd say, uh, she'd say go to church, read your Bible, and uh, say your prayers, right? Just the simplicity of joy in Jesus. Uh, does Jesus sit on the throne of your heart, right? That's why we do what we do. That's what matters. And, uh, and that's what we're going to get ready to celebrate here starting next week. We're going to do, like Jack said, a month of, uh, of exploring the Easter story. Next week, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, Jesus Teaches, and then the next Sunday, the triumphal entry, Jesus enters. Uh, and then Easter Sunday, Jesus, Jesus dies and rises. And then the following week, uh, Jesus reigns. And we'll look at uh, the Pentecost story. So, but we're in James. And we will then return to James for that last month of May as we finish out the year. But this is where James has been. Uh, he's been talking about our words. And, uh, and so the question hit me, does it feel like we live in a judgmental culture. <laughs> Broadly speaking, does that, does that feel like our culture? And does, does James, does the gospel story have any relevance in, in that world we live? And so there was a, a book written called The Coddling of the American Mind. What, where, where did this judgmental culture stem from? Where does it come from? And, and there's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. And he says three primary ideas of where he can articulate some of where this comes from. Don't hear me endorse uh, everything, but I thought it was a fascinating read. And he, he identifies these three issues uh, of where this judgmental culture stems from. Uh, it comes from something that's been communicated in our culture. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. That commonplace negative events have turned into nightmarish monsters that we should stay away from. That, that, that we should avoid these things at all costs. If they trigger you, you should avoid them. Here's a couple quotes from an article he wrote for The Atlantic. Sarah Roth, in an online article for the Chronicle of Higher Education, writes, one of my biggest concerns about trigger warnings is that they will apply not just to those who have experienced trauma, but to all students creating an atmosphere in which they are encouraged to believe that there is something dangerous or damaging about discussing difficult aspects of our history. He continues quoting another article in an article published last year by Insider Higher Ed, and this was written about 2015, so a while ago already. Seven humanity professors wrote that the trigger warning movement was already having a chilling effect on their teaching and pedagogy. Their report from their colleagues receiving phone calls from deans and other administrators investigating student complaints that they have included triggering material in their courses with or without warnings. A trigger warning, they wrote, serves as a guarantee that students will not experience unexpected discomfort and implies that if they do, a contract 
has been broken. I, I just expect, you guys are probably going to experience something discomforting every single Sunday you show up here. That's just, that's just kind of the expectation of what you guys expect. Instead, in the classroom, here's what he said, a trigger warning they wrote, serves as a guarantee that students will not experience unexpected discomfort and implies that if they do, a contract has been broken. When students come to expect trigger warnings for any material that makes them uncomfortable, the easiest way for the faculty to stay out of trouble is to avoid material that might upset the most sensitive student in class. It's not saying that there's legitimate trauma that might have happened in someone's past that we should be aware of, some type of PTSD. If someone had a traumatic experience with an elevator, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be sensitive to that, but to imply that anyone who steps in an elevator at any time should suddenly feel this rush of fear if the elevator goes out, that suddenly the gears are going to come apart and you're going to drop 40 floors. That would be an illogical uh, unnecessary leap. Instead, you might wait for the repairman. And so w- what does this look like when we start broadening this? It's producing this judgmental culture. Second, he says, not only what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, and so we should avoid conflicting or challenging ideas. Second, he also says, broadly speaking, in our culture, we're encouraged to always trust our feelings, and we begin developing this emotional reasoning where we remove anything that might cause negative feelings. If I don't feel good about it, I shouldn't do it, right? And emotional reasoning starts to permeate our culture. And then when I feel offended by something you might have said, my emotional reasoning then, he says, has actually stemmed to another dangerous expression in this judgmental culture. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. There are only two sides, you and me, us and them. And if I feel emotional reasoning, if I feel inflicted by what you said, because it's you versus me, now I can take physical violence against you. That's where our culture is, right? So what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Second, always trust your feelings, emotional reasoning. And then third, it is this you versus me attitude. And in the midst of this judgmental culture, how ought followers of Jesus respond? How might those that claim to treasure Jesus live and interact in a world? Ought we return fire with fire? Is that the best way to respond? When I feel judged and inflicted, ought I then return judgment back at you? Or does James offer something so much more profound in a way that actually releases and frees us for something the world is waiting for. So here's where we've been in James. We just believe that there is truth anchored in this book, that God, through his younger brother James, tells us about his older brother Jesus and is inspired to write these words to us. We keep anchoring ourselves in truth and let that permeate our lives. Where James has been going, faith works when we're tested. When there is judgment perceived, what emerges out of your life? Is it this genuine rock of faith, and does faith actually lead you to love? Faith works when we love. Do we show no partiality, as James has been saying? And now he's in this third part, faith works when we speak. And I think just like last week, he's building on how do quarrels and fights happen among you? Well, we understand. We understand where quarrels and fights come from, right? It's a who problem. It's that person over there. They're the problem. But instead, James turns it on us and says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Here's what he says. 
What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You're not getting what you're wanting, and so you covet and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people that were cheating our affections on God, that were cheating on God, that the affections intended for him are being misplaced into other areas. He calls us adulterers. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And now we're going to explore these last two verses. In a judgmental culture, ought we return judgment with judgment, or... Does James and the Gospels encourage us to something different? Here's what James says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor that James is actually offering us a better way on how we might interact with a judgmental culture, not returning judgment for judgment, but actually believing that speaking destructively to or about anyone else is a really big deal. Why? Because God is God and we ought never take his place. When we begin speaking destructively to or about others, we're putting ourselves in the place of God and we ought never try to take his place. Here's where James is going to take us this morning. And we try to enter in how might we as followers of Jesus interact in the midst of this culture. Pray with me. Oh, God, you are so good. We want to hear from you this morning uh, through your words, through James, that feel so relevant in our culture today where, where just slings and arrows and verbal attacks are all over the place. How might we as followers of Jesus reflect something different about who you are and see our faith lead to what we do? Thank you, Jesus, for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here, here's where James is going to take us. In the midst of a judgmental culture, how ought we respond? He says we respond differently. We actually believe that speaking destructively to or about anyone else is a really big deal because God is God and we ought never try to take his place. And so here's our map for the morning. Here's the three layers we're going to try and walk through. Speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are placing ourselves in authority over people. But not just over people, speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are putting ourselves above the law of God. And one step further, if we're putting ourselves above people and the law of God, speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we may not have genuine faith. So here's where we're starting. Speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are placing ourselves in authority over people. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother. When you speak evil against someone, you are putting yourself in authority over your brother or sister. You are judging your brother or sister. Now, the two questions that immediately come up are, but David, doesn't the Bible tell me to judge? And David, I've, I've heard this countless times. I, I get it. Don't judge. I get it. I already know this. So I just want to briefly explore those two things that stir up in my heart when I read this text. Doesn't the Bible tell me to judge? And the place we first go is when we hear from Jesus, he tells us a little bit about how this works. Here's what he says in Matthew 7. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log protruding in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We see he's not saying, don't judge at all. What's he saying? Judge at your own risk. Because there's a risk to the degree that you judge someone else, it's going to be measured against you. So you ought to take the log out of your own eye first before you start inspecting for the speck. But it doesn't say, do not judge at all. It says, judge at your own risk. I love this quote. And he continues. Because just in the same senses of saying, don't judge, Jesus goes one more step in the very next verse of don't judge. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. It's not that we don't judge at all. He says, judge at your own risk and be discerning about character. Character matters. And I love what John Stott says about this Sermon on the Mount. The command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. What is the call when we try and step into circumstances? It's around the idea of bringing people back. Here's what James is gonna tell us in chapter five. Our goal is to gain back a brother or sister. So when we judge, is our heart, is our goal, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And in the act of entering into a conversation where it's tense is the goal to actually bring reconciliation. Jesus, again, in Matthew 18, the quintessential text on church discipline, Matthew 18, is where we see the verse where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Not a verse about community, actually about reconciliation. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. And this judgment is not about criticizing, but rather about restoration and reconciliation. And so when James is challenging us, he understands there is a healthy place, but he also understands our predisposition is, I already know this. I already, don't judge. I already, I already know this. To which we would respond, man, there's a lot of things in life that we know to be true. We just don't always experience as real. You know, I believe that eating healthy is a good thing. I believe that. And I don't know if I'm supposed to share this. Since coming to Wisconsin, I'm at 207 now, guys. Man, those casseroles hit hard. Those are wonderful things. 
Do I know that eating healthy is a good thing? Absolutely. And yet I understand that I could experience that reality more. James understands there are things that we believe to be true. He's writing to churches, right? He understands who he's writing to, and yet he understands our disposition or, 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 or bent towards not living out these as fully as we could. Here's what he says. Speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are placing ourselves in authority over other people. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother is putting yourself in authority over them. And so I, I just wanted to find terms real quick because we can start getting confused in these terms. What does James mean by do not judge? Here's a definition that, that seems to resonate with me about what it means to not judge. When we're judging others, it's viewing other people as guilty, as deserving of punishment because of the choices they have made, viewing ourselves as better than them because of the choices we have made. Man, those people over there, us versus them mentality, they just can't figure it out. That those people over there, they just don't understand. And Casey's like, why are you pointing at me? Yes, Kay, this is a, there's a who problem in our home, right? Who, who is it? That was last week, never mind. Sorry, guys. Stay on, you guys are like, stay on track, David. Stay on track. Judging others. When we start viewing ourselves as better than and being condescending as if our behavior somehow merits greater reward. Instead, are we evaluating? Here's, here's a sense of what I hope you hear in that evaluating. Viewing other people as fellow strugglers. Fellow strugglers guilty, just as we are. As deserving of punishment because of the choices they and we have made but who through the transforming, redeeming power of Jesus' love can be changed just like we are. And if we view ourselves as no better than them just because of the choices we make. How might I evaluate rather than judge? If James says, don't speak in a way that puts yourself in authority over a brother or sister, how might we evaluate rather than judge? I think it starts here, consistently starts here. We constantly treasure and reflect on Jesus' love and grace towards us. And then, in love, we stand for what is good in God's eyes. Compassion without agreement. Rather than in us versus them, we begin seeing ourselves as fellow strugglers trying to grow in grace, no longer contentious, driven by emotional reasoning. Instead, we stand for what is good in God, God's eyes. How might you discover that? What's the greatest tool we have in our arsenal? I hope it's this. In love, we ask genuine, caring questions. Help me understand how you see the world. In love, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand how you arrived at that conclusion. For those that have yet to treasure Christ, I hope it's a continuing journey as a fellow struggler trying to pursue, and it's discovered through asking questions. 
I don't understand how when you walk in an elevator, you think suddenly this thing's gonna drop 40 floors and you're gonna plummet to your death. What, where's that coming from? And we ask genuine, caring questions. And then in love, we hear pain. Because I imagine after a few questions, pain does emerge. Somewhere, somehow, something happened that led to some hurt or pain or trauma. Rather than run from it and what, only, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, rather than run from it and be triggered by it, how do we actually enter into the pain and in love come alongside people and meet them where they are, no matter how messy? Yeah, David, but that takes time. That, that takes effort. David, I got, a busy, I got a busy schedule. I got things going on in my calendar that I can't really squeeze or make room for. You have because you do not ask, or you don't have because you do not ask. Might we ask God, I want more margin in my life to be able to step into the judgmental culture that I exist in and offer something different than what's provided. Might we pray, watch, and then actually step. And in stepping, might we actually offer some of ourselves. In love, we work through our hurt because of our hope, and we respond to hurt in a way that astonishes the world. David, I keep trying to push you away, and yet somehow you keep coming back with love and care and concern for me. And everything I do keeps trying to push you away. Might we respond in a way that astonishes a world, a judgmental world that is looking for something else? I hope this is our pattern that we anchor ourselves in truth week in, week out. We're doing something called exegesis. Big word, big $5 word. We're reading the text and we're seeing that text begin to color the decisions in our lives so that then we can live accordingly. What do we call that? We wanna think biblically about everything. Every decision you make in your Monday to Saturday, is it, is it colored through this lens of what does the Bible have to say about it? What does James have to say about the decisions of my life? And then are we culturally discerning? Do we wisely navigate an acceleratingly complex culture? So I'd love to invite up Beth, because I can't imagine the different scenarios you have in your life, Monday to Saturday. And so Beth is willing to share just at least one area where she was trying to navigate faith works when I speak. Because I imagine in our Monday to Saturdays, the same is true. We just might have different scenarios that we're confronted by. Hey, and if you want to put that on here, you were holding it last, last service, or you want to hold it? I don't care. Okay, up to you. So this is, this is Beth. Beth, why don't you just tell us a, a little bit of who you are and your connection around here at Hillcrest? Um, I'm Beth Voss. Um, I came here in 2013 uh, for MOPS uh, when my oldest was about one year old and I was desperate for some Christian mom friends. Um, and I stay for Bible studies with Lisa and Michelle. Um, and I love meeting more women, um, especially moms, because that's the stage of life I'm in. Because mm, a mom of two with how old are your boys? They're seven and nine, so uh, they're fun. Pretty special. And, and so why don't you just encourage us on, on where James four has been hitting you. Where, where do fights and quarrels happen? It's a who problem, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And yet God's doing a work in your life. And so just encourage us of what James four, faith works when I speak, has been stirring in you. Uh, James has been working a lot in the last couple of years. Um, I was thinking about it because James four, a couple of years ago, I ended up getting baptized because four, seven, eight really spoke to me about submitting to God. Mm. Um, 
Two was, years ago, you were baptized. That was two years ago, and I remember thinking it was so important then. Mm. So, and just even though you've read a verse, might still have application continually. So when you preached on it last week, it had all brand new meeting, and that mm. was fantastic. Mm. Um, but lately with James, I've been really convicted to not use my word in destructive ways, um, but to build up and encourage one another. Um, and sometimes that involves humbling myself um, by speaking less and praying more. Uh, I'm a verbal processor, so I can talk a lot, and it's very easy to start criticizing and start judging, and that's really not my job. Um, so I've found that to stop and do that, I try to find the good in others and then try to see things from their perspective. Um, we're all made in the image of God. Um, they might be very similar to me. They might be the opposite. They might be complementary. Everyone has their own value. Um, and even though they might not do it the same way I would, that still has merit. Um, and if you know my husband, he doesn't do things the way I would, and he's wonderful, and together we can do great things. Mm. So um, I've learned that often I'll ask a trusted friend, or my awesome husband, uh, to help me by talking through things. And often that shows that's what really is bothering me is something in my own heart. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and fights? It's that I'm not getting my own way. And sometimes I forget it's not all about me. So. Um, if my goal is to speak truth and give grace in conflicts, I want to know how I can work towards the common good of serving God. And at church, that's kind of our goal in our life, but mm. I recently had that happen here at church. Um, I used to coordinate the MOPS group, and I noticed when dropping off my kids for a Sunday school one day that they weren't doing things exactly the same way that we used to do them for MOPS kids. Um, and I was starting to let it stew, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm criticizing it in my head and judging, and I was like, okay, well, let's talk to the husband. Um, and then I talked to a couple of Christian friends about it, um, and I started to pray, because that's really what I needed to do to work on my heart. Um, and then I talked to Erin, because Erin is amazing. She's the children's ministry leader, and she has such a heart for our kids, and she's teaching them biblically sound, wonderful things. Um, so I asked her if she'd meet with me, and she graciously, graciously agreed. Um, and in talking to her, I was telling her about what I saw, areas I had questions about, and asked if there was ways I could maybe help. Um, and what I learned from that conversation was maybe she just needed some more help, between her and the other leaders so that they could teach and manage the things. Um, I know many of the workers have changed or stepped away in the last couple of years. I took a break during COVID. Um, and so finding new people to serve and help out has been a huge challenge. Um, and with kids ministry, it changes every service, every week. It's hard to plan for how many people you need down there. So um, I could see that she was working on it and trying to figure it out. Um, and while I have two young boys at home, teaching a group of kids is not my, not, not, not my gifting. Um, but she said that maybe if I would be willing to help greet the kids or the families or help sign them in. I was like, yeah, I can do that. Computers, we can do this, talk to people. Um, but then she's like, how about if you come and assist the group, like herd the children and keep them together? And I was like, I can do that. So finding a way that we could work together to make it all work. Um, and she's allowed me to help serve once a month, a couple times a month if I need, want. Um, mm. And it's in a role that I feel comfortable and gifted doing. Mm. And it's allowed me to see kids and see my own kids and other kids grow in God. And that's amazing to see them light up. And sometimes hearing the kids' version really lights me up going, oh, that's what the fruit of the Spirit speaks mm. of this week. So, mm. um, And I've loved it because I've missed seeing the kids and the families um, from MOPS. And now I get to interact with more of them. So it's really been good for my soul, too. So as we work through James, I'm working on giving people more grace and love on them, as I hope they do to me, um, and trying to see how to work together more instead of just criticizing. I might not always agree with people. I might not always be the person to fix it. Um, but often I'm able to gain some perspective mm. and see how God has made others uniquely great and how to work together with them. So I've learned if I'll humble myself and before others and the Lord and ask for his perspective that I can use my words more productively and work towards mm. 
his greater good. And, and here's always the tension. When you share something like that with me, there's a high probability that you might also get to share it with the rest of us. Say no to coffee. all in this journey. <laughs> oh, Beth. And there, there's the journey, right? That, that actually in our head, we begin thinking differently. Something starts stirring in our hearts, right? I heard this quote about bitterness. Bitterness is like taking poison and thinking the other person is going to die, right? You actually start festering something in your heart. If you don't stop it there, shift your mentality, made in the image of God, and then actually what you heard Beth say, don't stop there, but actually step in with your head, heart, and then your hands to real situations. Thank you, Beth. It's good stuff. I just, I just believe we are all walking through some situation in our Monday to Saturdays. Speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are placing ourselves in authority of other people, but here's the danger. Not just in authority over other people, but actually over God. Speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are putting ourselves above the law of God. And just like last week, the first point has a lot more information than the final two. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother judges his brother does what? He begins speaking evil against the law and judging the law. And if you start judging the law, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. There's this weight that begins associating with the way we interact with others actually says something about our vertical relationship. Paul just blasts us. If you want to go get challenged, go back and read Romans 1 to 3. I just want to read one section from Romans 2, but just feeling the weight of what it means to live in grace. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge, who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's wrath for eternity? No. Or do you presume that on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and dependent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what Paul and I think James are telling us. That speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are putting ourselves above the law of God and above the giver of the law. That when we start judging others, it's actually hypocritical, self-indicting evidence of our brokenness. We're actually storing up God's wrath for a future day. It's self-indicting evidence against us when we start presuming to judge others as if we're better. And God is fair in judging those of us who judge others. Do we believe God is fair in his judgment? That if we would do that to others, there's actually something that is waiting for us. He continues, and all self, and this is what hits me. As a, as a kid who grew up with this moralistic sense of entitlement, all self-righteous moralistic hypocrites will be judged by God. It wasn't until, and you guys have heard a little bit of my conversion story, I was in college, and I felt the weight and conviction of my own brokenness and was wrecked by the fact that not others are awaiting God's judgment, but there's a judgment for my own life. Do I believe, much like what I celebrate with Maxine, joy in Jesus actually is that gateway that Maxine is celebrating with Jesus today. Why? Not on a basis of her ability, but rather on Jesus' reconciliation of us to the Father. But when I'm self-righteous, moralistic, 
there's a judgment. Do I believe that to be true? And when I'm judging others for their behavior and wrongdoing and being distant from God, Paul tells us in Romans, we actually might think we're pleasing God when in actuality we are cultivating his wrath. He eventually will make that unmistakably clear unless we repent. No judgment. James is saying, in a judgmental culture, how do Christians respond? How do followers of Jesus respond? We actually respond in a counterintuitive way to the rest of the culture around us. Speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are placing ourselves in authority other people. And speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we are actually now taking the place of God as the righteous lawgiver, the righteous judge. But he goes one step further and actually brings an indictment against our faith. That speaking destructively reveals our arrogance that we may not have genuine faith. Here's what he says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, for the one who speaks evil against the brother or judges his brother. If you judge your brother, then what does that say? You're actually judging the law. And if you judge the law, there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save. So you're actually judging God. And if you're judging God, what does that reflect about your life? He says, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And what has James told us thus far in his letter about those who aren't doers? Here's what he says back in chapter one. There's the organization, right? Here's what he said back in chapter one. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Because what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The works he's talking about in this context in the midst of a judgmental culture, how do those who claim to have faith respond? Do they look like everybody else? Are they emotionally reasoning to, to determine their actions? Do they run from conflict to, to hide themselves? They're triggered, and so I can't deal with any conflict. Or third, does it feel like it's us versus them versus a fellow traveler along the way looking for some bread, having found it, and wanting to share with others? Do we actually have a different mentality on the way we interact? If you've yet to treasure Jesus and you're sitting and you're hearing this, I hope you're encouraged. People that are on the journey just looking for hope in Christ, having found it and want to share it. But if we don't have that, James says, he says that's no faith. And my tendency, my tendency is I'm going to judge their behaviors and I'm going to add my works to the table to show how righteous I am James condemns that as well and says faith plus works is actually false faith. Instead, what James has been challenging us with is faith. This view of Jesus inevitably gets flown out in our life, in our Monday to Saturday, in our workplaces, in our homes. How might that look in our world? This phrase continues to hit me. If we think we trust Jesus, but there are no signs of spiritual life in how we speak, and we understand, you nonverbal communicators, you are saying a truckload of stuff. Every time we get that glance, we understand you're saying a ton of stuff. But no matter what we say, no matter how much we understand, we really don't trust him. That is a sobering reality James has been hitting with us. And so, what might this look like in our day today? I want to revisit what Beth said and try and see where we might have that apply in our life, in the decisions and actions we encounter. 
And so, how might I evaluate rather than judge? How might I actually enter into relationship with people as fellow strugglers on the journey? What might that look like for me? I, I think it starts here. You heard where it started for Beth. This head conviction. We constantly treasure and reflect on Jesus' love and grace towards us. We got the Easter story coming up. This is a core part of our conviction that we celebrate that Jesus did really rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. Why do we gather on Sunday? You guys know why we gather on Sunday? Because we are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday 2,000 years ago. And so we continue to anchor our lives in that reality week after week after week. We constantly treasure and reflect on Jesus' love and grace towards us. And in love, we stand for what is good in God's eyes. We continue to stand. It's, It's not a fight against flesh and blood, right? Instead, it's journeying with fellow strugglers on this journey of what it looks like to have compassion without agreement. And this feels increasingly relevant in a judgmental culture where where I just, I get lost sometimes because my my emotions start to flare up and I go, "Don't, don't these people get it? And yet, that's an indictment on my own heart. What is a great tool we get to use? Questions. In love. We ask genuine, caring questions in order to stand for what's good in God's eyes. We had a conversation recently, Casey and I did, with just someone in the school district. And it was around the idea of kindness and just potential things we celebrate and don't celebrate. Can we both celebrate kindness? Absolutely. But how might we navigate when we don't necessarily want to celebrate the same things. Where do we go from there? How do you determine what you celebrate and don't celebrate? And that led to a fruitful, fulfilling conversation. And I don't say this flippantly. I don't say this carelessly. There's a conversation taking place nationally that the gospel actually has relevance into when we ask genuine and caring questions. What is a woman The Bible actually answers this stuff. And we get to stand, not by bashing people over the head, but actually asking genuine, heartfelt questions. Help me understand your point of view and what usually is gonna come out. We get to hear pain. Do we walk long enough alongside someone to hear the pain and actually enter into the mess because it's messy? Once you start opening your arms and your, and your heart to this stuff, it gets messy real quickly. In love, we come alongside people and meet them where they are, no matter how messy. And then, there might be an opportunity for you to share your story too. In love, we work through our hurt because of our hope and respond to hurt in a way that astonishes the broken world. Because everything would say, David, why do you keep pursuing me? I just want you to go away sometimes. Stop asking me these questions. Stop hanging with me. Let me live the way I want to live. And yet followers of Jesus say, in the midst of a judgmental culture, we have a different way to offer. Come find life with Jesus. One life at a time. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, you're so good to us. You pursue us even in our brokenness, in our mess. You modeled for us 
at the cross, you modeled for us what it meant to be pursued in the midst of our mess. Even when we were still sinners, you died for us and help us embody that, model that, where there's no judgment instead as fellow strugglers on the way, we keep pointing people to you. Thank you, Jesus, always for your journey, <laughs> in the journey and our desire to glorify you. Amen.